You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. We're seeing some incredibly sophisticated outfield designs at baseball stadiums these days. It makes me wonder how they do that. We're going to find out from award-winning groundskeeper Britt Berry of the Class A Dayton Dragons. If you want to see how blurry the line is becoming between reality and virtual reality, head to the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta. Mike Bilbo of the Hall takes us through it. Green Bay Packers historian Cliff Crystal takes us for a tour of Lambeau Field. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran updates the grim news regarding NFL stadium prospects in both San Diego and Oakland. First, let's get to the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff. Well, the saga of the Raiders and Chargers search for new stadium deals took a few more turns this week. The headline grabber was NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell at league meetings expressing pessimism about deals in both markets. In Oakland, city and Alameda County officials approved a stadium term sheet. In other words, a working timeline in an attempt to stop the team from moving to Las Vegas. Meanwhile, USA Today reports NFL owners approved a lease agreement that clears the way for the Chargers to play in Stan Kroenke's new venue in Inglewood. Elsewhere in Minneapolis, the agency that runs the new Viking Stadium is changing its policy when it comes to who uses the agency's stadium suites. Minnesota Sports Facilities Authority was criticized for letting friends and family use the suites at U.S. Bank Stadium. Agency head Michelle Kelm-Helgen told Minnesota Public Radio changes are on the way. Essentially what we've done is we've said, okay, we hear you. We are going to eliminate bringing any friends and family and everyone who is in the box will be in the box for only marketing purposes. Going forward, the agency will keep detailed list of just who utilizes the suite. Of course, we all know what is happening in Minneapolis takes place at sports venues across the country. Friends and family usually benefit from their relationships with stadium movers and shakers. In Washington state, lawmakers have introduced a bill that would allow those with a concealed weapons permit to bring handguns into sports facilities. It focuses on venues controlled by public facilities districts, which includes the Seahawks CenturyLink Field and the Mariners Safeco Field. Many think the bill is unlikely to become law, but they do point to a shifting political landscape as a reason for the bill being introduced. And a makeover is on the books for LeBron's home court. The Cleveland Cavaliers announced plans for a $140 million renovation to Quicken Loans Arena. Set to begin next year, the plan calls for a modernized glass front to the venue, expanded public gathering spaces, and larger food and beverage areas. The venue will remain open during the entire renovation project. 
Bill, that's the very latest. That sounds exciting. Thanks, Jeff. I don't know about you, but man, I think when you go to the baseball park these days, you're going to see some amazing designs on the field. Now, this is not the way it used to be. This is a relatively new development. And uh, depending upon the ballpark you visit, you may see some incredible designs. And we're going to find out how from Britt Berry, who is the sports turf manager of the Dayton Dragons, a Class A baseball team in Dayton, Ohio, minor league affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds, close by, obviously about 40 or 50 miles away. Britt uh, was honored by the Sports Turf Managers Association for having the best design this year, a beautiful diamond design. It's almost hard to describe it even. You created a very intricate, what they refer to as mowing pattern. How is it possible for uh, small areas of the field to show up and to stand out the way you made them stand out? Uh, well, I guess when you're looking at the uh, mowing patterns, you really see two different colors. You see like a lighter green and a darker green, mm-hmm. um, and that's all just how the sun reflects off the grass blade. So the lighter color lines, the, the lighter green when you're looking at the mowing line is when you're mowing um, with the pattern. So but that's the direction that the mower was going, and the darker lines are when the mower is coming back towards you. So. Uh, mainly it's uh, it's just mowing it in a couple times and burning in that line so it's nice and crisp and straight obviously you need someone with a, a steady hand and a good eye to it definitely definitely makes it pop when you get a, a nice crisp line and that good definition in it. What is the process for making it fit? You know probably to the square inch exactly how much space you have there and how do you make the design contour exactly to that space? In the Dayton with the Dragons, we have exactly 100,000 square feet of Kentucky bluegrass. So in the past, I guess we use our mowing patterns in the past and kind of look at pictures and things to give a good reference point. But mainly it's just kind of lining it up. And with this specific pattern, we took our logo um, and gridded it out. So we put it on a piece of paper and gridded it out so it was in uh, squares. And then we mowed the lines in the uh, in the outfield. We mowed from center field to home plate, and then from left field to right field. And basically, made a pattern out in the outfield, the same uh, checkerboard pattern, and just used the uh, grid lines on the paper and matched it up, uh, flagged it all out, and then started mowing from there. You know, Britt, we see an awful lot of these kinds of designs now. How much do you keep an eye on what you see in other ballparks, and how much does it influence what you are doing? Well, we're always looking at other ballparks from a major leagues to, you know, single A, and a lot of the, I mean, even the, a lot of the colleges have pretty awesome, not only patterns, but other uh, concepts that, that we're looking at. And uh, when the game's on TV, you're not just looking at the, you're not just watching the game, you're not just looking at the mowing lines, but you're looking you know, at the infield dirt and how that's playing and how the mound's holding up. And if there's rain, how uh, how the field's taking that. So there's a lot of, a lot that goes into it besides baseball that you, that you really don't appreciate until you've worked in our industry anyway and kind of put in the hours and, and seen where you're having problems and asking other groundskeepers and everything. 
everybody's very closely knit, so it's it's a great uh, great industry to work in. Brett, let's look ahead and uh, check into your crystal ball now and see what the future holds on these kinds of designs. What can you imagine as some possibilities for the future? Oh man, it's uh, it's incredible. The new technologies they're coming out with uh, the Red Sox. They had printed out the David Ortiz picture out in center field, and uh, that's a new machine that that's uh, growing in popularity and starting to starting to be seen with some pretty cool uh, projects that that they're doing with that. There's you know mowers now that are not GPS but self-ran, where they uh, they can go out in the green and mow it with uh, some other equipment set up beside it. So. Who knows? I mean, it's uh, it's crazy how far we've come, you know, in the last 15, 20 years as far as patterns. And it's, uh, I think, sky's the limit, really. I mean, who, who knows what's going to be next? Well, Brett, congratulations on this. I know it's a wonderful experience. It has to be great to be honored by the Sports Turf Managers Associations for your efforts in mowing and field maintenance. And, brother, you really did the job this year. Uh, Brett is the Sports Turf Manager with the Class A Dayton Dragons. Brett, we wish you well. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And Looking forward to next year. Britt Berry, our guest, talking about that beautiful baseball field that he uh, went ahead and uh, designed, the beautiful design on it, from Dayton, Ohio. And speaking of Dayton, we're going to reach into an interesting story here coming up. You know, the thrill of walking into a college football stadium as 100,000 fans cheer you on. That thrill exists in virtual reality at the College Football Hall of Fame, which got its start in the Dayton, Ohio area, then went to South Bend and is now in Atlanta. We'll dive into that story next, right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. It appears the National Football Foundation's College Football Hall of Fame has really found itself in its new city of Atlanta. This Hall of Fame has a long history going back to the Dayton, Ohio area, then through to South Bend, and now to Atlanta, where the momentum is really building. And this is a high-tech happening thing. When you visit, you'll find out for yourself, and we're going to introduce you to the person who's involved with many of the aspects of uh, all of the unusual displays and the overall experience. Mike Bilbo is the Vice President of Content and Development at the College Football Hall of Fame. Mike, thank you for the visit, and uh, you and I are at the front door right now, and we're going to walk in. Let's take it right from there. What is the experience of walking into the building? 
Well, the first thing you'll notice is uh, on the right side, we have uh, some large, very large, bigger-than-life-side portraits of some of the best players from the best conferences in the, in the country. On the left side of the, uh, the entrance tunnel, we've got a, a, an LED display that kind of mimics the silhouette that you'd see of a team coming out of the locker room onto the field to get ready to start a game. And then you'd be greeted by one of our fan ambassadors in the, in the space that we call the quad, which is kind of our, our entry hall. Um, and if you look up uh, on the left side, you'll see a giant painting that was uh, painted by uh, uh, a local artist, Penley, who is uh, fairly well-known and with some of the uh, iconic scenes of college football, mm-hmm. you know, dating back 100 years. And then in front of you, a helmet wall with uh, over 770 helmets of uh, active four-year colleges here in America. That's an awful lot, and that is just stepping in the front door, ladies and gentlemen. Then we have the opportunity to begin to immerse ourselves in a different reality. The goal is to present the experience of football in a new way. Give us an overview of what you were after here with these new high-tech tools. Well, what we were trying to do is, you know, the, the, the technology has been around, you know, a year or two. It's really been able to be put into the hands of a consumer. And it was, what can we allow folks to see or to view that they couldn't do if they went to a game, even with a really good ticket? So, you know, you, you get that best ticket in the stadium, and you're three or four rows up right there on the 50-yard line, it's a great uh, atmosphere for watching the game, but you don't really get to see what it's like to be on the field or to be in the end zone or when the band comes out or things like that. So what we attempted to do was try to, to bring people a little bit of that uh, by using the virtual reality. And, you know, you take, you take a camera and you put it in uh, certain strategic places on a football field while the game's going on and get people a little bit more of an inside view, uh, a little bit more than what you'd see from just sitting in the stand or even on even on TV at home. Mike, the old College Football Hall of Fame in South Bend had an outdoor football field. It was a short field. I noticed that you in the new building, that field has been taken indoors and it seems as if from from what i can tell from the pictures uh the fan involvement the potential there is really something else Uh, tell us about walking into that space and what people can do when they get into that space so when you walk into that space you walk through what we call the touchstone tunnel and that is uh, that shows some of the traditions that you have into some of the various locker rooms around the country. So you have the play like a champion today sign from South Bend and Notre Dame. You have the win sign from uh, LSU, the rope that Tulsa holds in the locker room. So you have the, the go blue sign from Michigan. So you're, you as a fan can jump up and hit that sign as you head out onto the field. It kind of gives you a little bit of a, a taste of what the players do. And then when we're out on the field, we have a 45,000 square foot indoor football field. It's about, it's about 40 yards long. Uh, it's about 25, 30 yards wide, not directly to scale, but we do have a four scale goalpost. Uh, and you can kick extra points. You can have a throw quarterback pass, throw passes in our quarterback challenge. We have uh, tackling dummies, all that there in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl skill zone. 
And then we have a couple of uh, interactives where you can do a dance, a touchdown dance, or show us your game face, and that's recorded and then put onto our big 36-foot HD video board there in the end zone of the football field. You also have a viewing area in there that looks very similar to what it would be like to sit in the stands. It seems to be a little different because it's elevated, but it gives you that same type of experience. Can you talk about that, too? We have bleachers. We we do do tailgate parties in there where folks will come in and, and watch a game just like uh, – they would, but they use it on our our big screen, and we, you know, we sell drinks and food and everything, and it's uh, all the fun of going to the game. And you don't have to, uh, you know, if you don't, if you can't get a ticket, we we welcome you into our place, and you're able to watch it. Isn't that something? I know a lot of us when we think of college football, particularly at certain schools, we often think of the uh, tailgating, which is quite a part of it, and which can extend for days. And you certainly didn't leave that out of the. Mix did you we did not leave that out um the in fact that's one of the first things you see in the building is a is kind of a representation of how tailgating's changed over the years and uh one of our uh one of our sponsors is kia and what they've done too is they've taken one of their sorrento suvs and they have tricked it out into kind of an ultimate tailgate rig where it has a grill built into it it's got uh, a set of goalposts built into it and a flip-down video screen so you can watch games. So it's kind of the ultimate tailgating rig. And we date back all the way to the turn of the century, all the way back to now, and how folks get into to, uh, tailgating. And one of, a couple of our games, uh, as you get into them digitally, it gives you the ability to download and use tailgate recipes for, for things that you could cook at your own tailgate. Mike, it is great to visit with you. Congratulations on everything you've done with the College Football Hall of Fame. We wish you a lot of success with it and a lot of visitors, too, in the future. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and brag uh, about my coworkers. Uh, <laughs> we've got a lot of help down here, and uh, they've done a great job. Mike Bilbo, Vice President of Content and Development of the College Football Hall of Fame, our guest. Coming up, we will break down the weekend stadium news. Mark Madoran standing by. He'll step to the plate next, right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. is time to talk shop once again and let's get at it we examine this week's stadium headlines and for that 
we turn to Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. Now, if you don't already know, Stadiums USA is the source you can count on for stadium news and information. Well, Mark, as much fun as our audience has with StadiumsUSA.com, the folks uh, regarding the California NFL stadium situation are not having nearly as much fun. It's a busy... They they are not, and it's a busy week. The Raiders and Chargers are really scratching their heads. Let's start in NoCal, which is Northern California. Sounds like a tentative deal was formalized this week in the Bay Area. What does it mean? Tentative is a really good word, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) In Oakland, city county officials have approved opening negotiations with Ronnie Lott's investment group for building a $1.3 billion stadium in Oakland. The approval does allow Lott and his group to get serious about the negotiations leading to a formal agreement. Lott has admitted that this is a very preliminary first step. It is a long and difficult process. They still have to convince the NFL that this is the right step. They still have to convince the Raiders and owner Mark Davis that this is the right step to take. And Mark Davis says, says he have other ideas. He's thinking about Las Vegas. He wants to move the Raiders there to a $1.9 billion stadium, which has already been approved. The financing would be in place by the people in Nevada. Now, the problem with the deal on the move to Las Vegas is nothing is certain. The NFL has to approve the move. And Mark Davis is not your most popular owner in the meeting. No. And getting 24 guys to nod their head for him is a tall order. And um, the second thing is a lot of owners are very skeptical about Las Vegas and the partnership group is a casino-based partnership group, and there are great concerns about that. So it's a lot different than when billionaire Stan Kroenke said he wanted to move the Rams, and everybody knew billionaire Kroenke could afford to build the stadium with no one else's help anyway, so Mm -hmm. they approved it. But this deal with the Raiders, there is no sure thing, and Ronnie Lott's group has a long way to go. Now, we've talked about probably the better scenario of the two right now. That's the good news. Let's get into the news that really doesn't look good. This Chargers situation, Mark, I can't see any way on this. The San Diego Chargers are probably moving. The team is probably loading the moving vans right now, even as we speak. (laughs) They just haven't left for Los Angeles yet. The Chargers have already been given the approval of the owners to relocate. In fact, at their most recent meeting, the owners approved of the move unanimously. All owners approved. The Chargers have until the 15th of January, which is uh, about a month from now, to exercise that option. But it appears like they have no other place to play. And that's going to have to be what's going to happen. Mark, the NFL has announced its 2017 schedule, and this includes four games in London, two at each of the stadiums that are currently used for NFL football there. And for the first time, they'll be playing four games overseas. It's interesting to see the teams that are going to be involved here. And uh, who's going over? I noticed the Bears and the Packers are not going over. Uh, Kind of (laughs) unpack this one for us, Mark. Basically, if you're in the NFL and you are a weak team at home and you're not drawing well, you can expect to end up playing a game across the ocean in London. And those four teams are the Jaguars, 
the Dolphins, the Browns, and the Rams. They are playing two games at Wembley. That's their traditional stadium where they've played in the past and and done well there, and uh, it's a good facility. But also playing two games at Twickenham, and that's the rugby stadium they tried to convert for NFL football. The field and the surface part was fine, but the amenities, uh, that didn't work very well. The locker rooms didn't exist. There were guys changing in uh, like an open gym, and it it was pretty ugly. So they're going to have to do some work on that facility. But part of the reason they're doing this is TV viewership in the U.K. is up dramatically. One survey said that they thought it had nearly doubled over the last five years. And for the Super Bowl, their viewership over the last five years is up about 75%. So Hmm. they are becoming NFL fans. So I wouldn't be surprised if – uh, the number of games continues to rise over the next few years. Interesting. Mark, the stadium officials at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey are going to get a workout this weekend. The Jets and the Giants both have home games scheduled. So how's that going to work? <laughs> NFL's only quick change stadium. No end zone <laughs> logos, just diagonal white lines. Remember when you watched football in the 1940s? When you saw the end zone in those days, you just had a couple of lines. Sometimes they crisscross some lines. But the end zones didn't have uh, all the fancy logos and colors that they do today. Mm-hmm. The Dolphins-Jets game is at 8.25 p.m. kickoff. And then the Lions and Giants is 1 o'clock p.m. the next day. So they have a lot less time to turn that field around. So if they decided they're not going to use the fancy colored logos this weekend, you're just going to see a simple 1940 style turnaround logo. And additionally, the forecast for the weekend is bad. So they knew that that switchover would be really, really tough on them. Mark, let's go ahead and hop in the Wayback Machine and take a look at some important dates in stadium and ballpark history. What do you have for us? This week in 1929, the Blackhawks play their first NHL game at Chicago Stadium. They beat the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yes, that's Pirates. They've switched the name now to <laughs> Penguins by a score of 3-1. to one. And this week, 1983, only 9,600 fans attend the NBA game at McNichols Arena in Denver between the Nuggets and Pistons. It was a historic night as the Pistons would win 186 to 184 in triple (laughs) overtime. (laughs) The combined 370 points remains an NBA record. And aren't you glad you aren't there for that one? (laughs) That's right. My jaw would be hanging down real low after that, I'll guarantee you. You know, McNichols Arena, very interesting venue. And the venue, which was the gateway for winter sports professionally in Colorado and in the Denver area. What about a little trivia? You're going to try to stump me again, Mark. What do you have here? Here's this week's stadium trivia question. This iconic venue was the first professional sports arena to feature modern air conditioning. Although it was fairly rudimentary by modern standards, uh, it often filled the arena with fog during late season games. (laughs) Can you name the arena with the first air conditioning system? Was it the Boston Garden? Hmm. Was it the Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto? The Chicago Stadium? Or Olympia Stadium in Detroit, all classic arenas. Uh, you know, you know who else experimented with air conditioning and had a pretty good angle on it was the folks over in Montreal. So I'm guessing it was Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. An excellent guess. Hmm? 
but incorrect. No, oh, gee. <laughs> it was the Chicago Stadium, oh, as mentioned gee. earlier in the broadcast. Oh. They air-conditioned in 1929 before it was commercially feasible for most buildings to even consider it. Why did I never notice that all of the time? I was in, <laughs> It always seemed so hot in it there. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I was in there in the winter, so they never had the air conditioning on. I never would have noticed it. Well, Mark, uh, good to see you as always. We'll catch you next week and a good have holiday. A good weekend, Bill. Yeah, a good holiday wish. And coming up, let's take a visit to the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. Talk about no need for air conditioning. This is the place in Green Bay. That That's next, right here on SB Nation Radio. It is an unforgettable experience to visit Lambeau Field. I remember my first time there in the early 70s, and it was a spectacular uh, experience, unforgettable, really. And we're going to visit with a person who knows this stadium far better than I, Cliff Crystal, award-winning writer, Hall of Fame member, and a guy who knows the Green Bay Packers inside and out and all of the facilities involved over many years. Going back to City Stadium, he knows a lot about that also. Cliff, it's great to visit with you once again, and what a joy it is to talk about a wonderful topic in Lambeau Field. You can't ask for a better topic than that, can you? No, and it's my pleasure too. Um, I can still remember my first game there as well. It was the first game ever played at what then was called New City Stadium, and my ticket cost 75 cents. You know, my family's had seats actually going back to the old City Stadium, 1950. I think it's 13 rows up behind the uh, Packer bench, and you feel like you're almost right on top of the team when you're when you're sitting there. No question, probably the best sight lines in pro football. Take us through how the stadium has grown and adapted to the times, because really, although we don't think of Lambeau Field as being based on its size so much, but Lambeau Field is a very large stadium for as close as you are to the action. That it certainly has, and it's undergone some pretty dramatic changes. In 1957, when it was built, it seated 32,154. It was a bowl built into the ground uh, because that was the most cost-effective way to build it. But the end zones weren't enclosed at that point. Uh, there were 60 rows on the sidelines, about half that in the end zones. As the Lombardi team started winning, they filled in the end zones. And then in the 70s and 80s, they added the club seats. And then in 2003, it underwent an extensive renovation, and now its appearance, uh, you might not even recognize it compared to when it was a 56,000-seat stadium. And I'm talking on the outside. The inside has basically stayed the same. You know, still got the aluminum bleachers for the most part, and still the bowl. Fans still sit close to the action, so that hasn't changed much, but the outside certainly has with the new atrium and some of the other amenities that have been added. This stadium seats a little bit over 80,000 now, and it really has been a a beautiful, beautiful upgrade. They've never had any trouble filling it, and I think this speaks to the nature of football in the state of Wisconsin. This is a state team. It's really a very large regional team, since obviously it reaches into the Upper Peninsula. A lot of fans in Michigan, a lot of fans in Minnesota, a lot of fans even in the Chicago area, a lot of fans below the Wisconsin border who are Packer fans. So certainly, as far as season tickets have been concerned, that's really never been an issue up there, has it? Well, the Packers have always drawn from a large area. 
They've always been a statewide team. They've always had a strong connection with the city of Milwaukee. So that hasn't changed. I mean, they, that goes back to the 20s and the 30s. In 1961, before Vince Lombardi's third season, is when they sold out on a season ticket basis for the first time, and that has been true every season since. And I believe the waiting list for tickets now uh, includes more than 100,000 names. So it's a tough ticket to get, and it is. It has been, uh, the Packers have always been supported by people from across the state of Wisconsin. You know, it is interesting. The Green Bay Packers are unique. I have always referred them as truly being America's team for one reason, because if you wanted to own part of it as an American, you actually could. And you may well be one of those owners uh, if you happen to have something called a piece of Packers stock, many thousands of whom have it framed in their living room and as a uh, central talking point in Wisconsin. Uh, So tell us about Packers stock and how that came into play with the renovation because uh, funding for uh, the Green Bay Packers and for stadium uh, improvements is a little different in Wisconsin with the Packers. Well, they've had five stock sales uh, in the history of the franchise. The first one was 1923, then they had one in 1935, and then in 1950. And those sales, each time the franchise is on the brink of folding. So they needed those stock sales just simply to survive. The last two stock sales, the more recent ones, they raised the money that allowed the team to uh, renovate and then even add more amenities in this latest renovation. So they weren't quite, they weren't essential for survival, but they've allowed the Packers to remain competitive. The numbers you're talking about now are pretty staggering. So, um, one of the keys to those recent stock sales was that they not only sold stock in the state of Wisconsin, but I believe in all 50 states and even a number of foreign countries. So they've really become a global franchise. What do you do with Lambeau Field the rest of the year? I think one of the challenges with any football-specific stadium is being able to utilize it more than just the few days a year when the Packers are playing on it. What are the things that they're doing in there? Well, that was a thinking behind the 2003 renovation and the building of the atrium. Packers wanted to turn it into a facility that could draw people every day of the year. And basically, they had done that with the restaurants and the, uh, opened a brand new pro shop that very much resembles a large department store. And they're now working on uh, a new Hall of Fame that should open next year. So because of the popularity of the franchise and the number of tourists who come to, for training camp and games, the Packers are now able to do what they, they hope to do when they renovate it. And that's keep their doors open 365 days a year, essentially. Well, it's a gorgeous facility. There's no question it has a very special place in the hearts of many, certainly those who've followed the NFL for years. And Cliff, we want to thank you very much for visiting with us about this place, Lambeau Field. A real pleasure. My pleasure, and uh, I don't think there's any question that Lambeau Field is a shrine to the NFL, (laughs) not just the Green Bay Packers. Cliff, you are so right. Thanks for the visit. Cliff Crystal, author and historian, visiting with us. That's our program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadiums USA on Blog Talk Radio.